Three of the most common words that Christians utter in a crisis are, God, do something. Have you ever said that? I know I've said that. We often panic when God doesn't do what we want, when we want. We give God directives and deadlines. I did that my last year of seminary. It was January. So I'm sending out resumes. I told God that he had until June to open up a door of ministry for me. You're you're laughing. Maybe you've done the same thing. We had a baby coming in March, and so I had to support my family, right? And I was going to graduate in June. But doors that looked like they were going to open all closed. I had a few interviews. They went well. In fact, two times I was down to the final candidate and another guy for a position And in both cases, they chose the other guy. So June came and went. July came and went. We're in August now, and it's leaving. And the seminary said very nicely and kindly to us, get out. New students would be coming in, and they needed the seminary-owned housing. So now I told God that he had until September 1st, at the very latest, to provide a church for us to pastor or any job at this point. And you know what? God just laughed. On September 15th, I was driving all our stuff back to Ohio in a U-Haul truck. The moving company that we had hired to move all our stuff stiffed us and ghosted us. I guess they sent out a brand new employee who quoted us a ridiculously low price and they weren't going to honor it. So they just left us there high and dry. So we're driving back in our U-Haul, and did I mention I was unemployed? God didn't seem to be on my timeline at all. Well, I finally found a job, or manpower found me a job, making $3.50 an hour, putting foam in plastic window frames. I had a master's degree. I had gone to college for seven straight years, and I was taking home minimum wage. But I reasoned that that was better than not working at all and making zero each month. So I took walks in the state park near where we were living. And I walked around in there and prayed and cried out to God and cried. And it wasn't until the next May that God finally opened a door for full-time pastoral ministry. About one year after I gave God my first deadline that he had to do something. Has this ever happened to you? God must have a good reason for doing this because he does it so often. And I think he does. He wants us to learn to trust him completely, even when we do not understand what's going on. I'm convinced that God will lead you into situations where your back is against the wall, where you're at the end of your rope. And you're going to have to decide, will I trust God or am I going to trust myself? Do I want God to get the glory in this situation or me. Psalm 37, 23 says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Andrew Murray writes, I'm here by God's appointment. 
in God's keeping, under his training, for his timing. We say, God, do something in my crisis. Do it now. And God says, I've arranged this for you. I want you to learn to trust me. I have a plan. It's all going to work out in the end. And the end, God says, is for our maturation. He wants us to be more like Christ. I like to call it enlargement through pressure or crisis training, crisis learning. I think we need pressure to grow. In a crisis, our true colors are revealed. Think about the field goal kicker. He's at practice every day kicking field goals. Easy peasy. But then he's in a game. And the game is on the line. The wind is blowing. It's raining hard. His team is down by two points. There's three seconds left on the clock. And the coach sends him into the game to kick the winning field goal. The ball snapped. The rush from the defensive line is ferocious. Will he choke in that moment or successfully execute that kick? Well, we don't know until we're put in that situation. We need to be in game-on-the-line situations in life to really know how we're going to react and what we're going to do. We're going to read a story this morning that I think is one of the epic stories of the Bible. And it's certainly one of the most famous stories of the Bible. It's the exodus or exit from Egypt. And because this story is on such a grand scale, I know I've tended to just read it and just kind of marvel at it, but not really look at it as as a story that has anything to do with my life. So I want us to look at it and think of this story this morning. What does this say to me? Are there any principles that God can use in this story to guide my life? I think that there are. Because Paul said that the Old Testament stories are there for our instruction. Let me share you a couple things with you this morning. Here's the first thing this story says. God put them in this predicament. God put them in this predicament. And let's read Exodus 13, 17 through 14, 4. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. So remember, that's what they're doing. They're they're traveling day and night here. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi. Hatheroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. 
and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So understand what's going on here. God is directing them, not man. God put them into this situation, not the devil. God, not their sinful nature. God. Oftentimes we have troubles because other human beings hurt us. Or we succumb to temptation and put ourselves in a bad situation. But they were only doing what God told them to do. The easiest escape route was explained here in our text. It would have been northeast of Egypt, right along the Mediterranean coast, up that way. It was a major trade route, very flat, very easy traveling. They would have been there in no time. Instead, God instructed them to go south toward the desert wilderness of Sinai, then east toward the Red Sea, to a place where they would be pinned in by mountains. Sea to the east, Pharaoh coming from the west. They were between a rock and a hard place. James, I'd like you to put up the, the map that I have there, that picture. Can you see that? Okay. This is the Nuweban Flats. And it's a real place on the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula. You, you can look it up on Google Maps. You, you can see it even from satellites. There's this nice flat beach there that about two million people could stand there. I believe that's the place God led them. And underwater, you see the, the line that is drawn over to the Saudi Arabian side, which is also flat on the other side, but not quite like on, on the Sinai side. Underneath the Red Sea there, also called the Sea of Aqaba, is a gravel road that's really shallow there. Let, let me read a quote here from the Exodus case by Dr. Lenhart Muller, a Swedish archaeologist. He says, it so happens that at Nueva, there is a flat underwater road across Yam Sup, or the Red Sea. Typical of the Gulf of Aqaba are high mountain ranges up to 2,600 meters in height, which enclose the Gulf. These mountains mostly go straight down into the sea. The Gulf of Aqaba has two deep basins. The northern is approximately 900 meters deep and the southern approximately 1,900 meters deep. The usual maritime maps of the area are of limited value. The reason is that it is so deep and with no islands, so there have not been any detailed surveys. Therefore, it is not unusual that relatively large vessels have no sonars or maritime maps when trafficking the Gulf of Aqaba. At Nueva, the coast is totally different. The Nueva Peninsula is very flat and goes three and a half kilometers straight out into the Gulf. This peninsula is so big that it is easily recognizable on all maps and from satellites. From the Saudi Arabian side, it is similar, although not so pronounced a situation. Massive erosion has in ancient times washed out huge amounts of sand and gravel from the surrounding mountains that today is solid rock via the wadis. This has generated the flat areas on both sides. Consequently, one can expect those flat areas to continue underwater. Is this the case at Nueva? Official data from the U.S. National 
geophysical data center suggests that there is a distinct underwater road from coast to coast with a maximum depth of approximately 100 meters. So we're going from 1,900 meters deep to 100 meters just at that spot. Maps of unknown identity actually show an underwater road character at Nueva in figure 373 in his book. A Russian map suggests an underwater shallow area between Nueva and the Saudi coast. At Nueva, the distance from coast to coast is approximately 14 kilometers. From the Saudi Arabian coast, it is as shallow as 87 meters out from the coastline. If this is correct, the transferable to both sides, it corresponds to a gradient of 2.2%. So instead of the steep mountain sides, which would have been too steep for anyone to walk, it was very gradual slope that would have made a very easy walk for even elderly or small children. I don't want you to miss the point here. God led them into this situation. God led them to a place where they'd be penned in. It reminds me of the story of the disciples that Jesus told to get into the boat in Mark 6:45. Immediately, he made his disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida where he dismissed the crowd. Remember, the disciples get into the boat, they get out in the middle, the Sea of Galilee, and a violent storm hits so bad that they thought they were going to drown that Jesus walked out on water and calmed them and rescued them. But who told them to get into the boat in the first place? Jesus. Be prepared for trials in life. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not anything strange at all that is happening to you, this fiery trial. Though we react like it's the strangest thing that's ever happened to us. And why is this happening to me? This shouldn't be happening to me. Your tea drink that you like so well, you put the bag of tea into the water, but just the bag of tea isn't going to do you any good. What does it need? It needs hot water, right? And the hot water flows through the bag and it releases the tea out into the cup and you have the taste of the tea. Trials grow up your faith. God wants you to come to realize that he's the only way out of this situation. He's your only hope. God was a little bit like the therapist who worked on my knee after surgery. I I tore my ACL and meniscus playing basketball. And so I had to have reconstructive knee surgery. Scar tissue forms very quickly after major surgery like this on the knee. So your knee has to be stretched and bent so that you get range of motion. Otherwise, your knee will lock up and freeze due to scar tissue and, and you'll be really limping around. So the therapist would bend my knee and he would straighten my knee and I literally screamed into the pillow. He was really hurting me. But had he listened to my cries and not done what he did, I would be limping today. God tears you, then heals you. Discipline hurts. Trials are tough. And if you're in a difficult place today... It's because God put you there or he allowed you to be there. Point number two in this story. Satan comes on the scene. Satan comes on the scene. Now let's pick the story up in Exodus 14, 3 through 10. 
For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pharaoh in front of Baal-Saphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out, to the Lord. The Bible depicts Pharaoh as a type of Satan. So what were some of his ploys of Satan that he used? Verse 3, Israel is wandering around in confusion. That's a lie. Satan lies and deceives you, wants you to believe his lies. It was God who led them there, ordering each step of the way. God was guiding them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a column of fire at night. They weren't lost. They weren't in confusion at all. They were right where God wanted them to be. So in a crisis, God will tell you, or Satan will tell you, you're out of God's will. That's why this is happening to you. God's mad at you. He doesn't love you. There's no hope for you. He whispers his lies to discourage you so you will quit going after God. Now, your mind will say, that's not true. I don't, that's not what the Bible says. But in your heart, you just believe, oh, yeah, it's true about me. This is where we have to take authority over Satan's lies and not believe them. Another ploy of the enemy is to attack. In verse 9, it says, the Egyptians pursued them and overtook them. First Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. If you are a Christian, Satan hates you. He wants you back or he wants to destroy you. So that's how he can get back at God. He wants you dead and in hell. Now, we know that God could have knocked the wheels off their chariots while they were still out in the desert pursuing them, but he didn't. God could have sent one of his angels to kill them along the route, but he didn't. He could have blinded them almost anywhere on their journey, but he didn't. He let them ride right up to his people who were trapped by the sea. Why does he do that? Because he wants to strengthen our faith and stretch our faith like that therapist was stretching my knee out. He wants to prepare us for spiritual battles that he knows lie ahead in the promised land. And as we come to the end of the age, spiritual battles are intensifying, getting worse. You have to have your spiritual armor on every day. And you need to be battle tested. Many Christians are, but some aren't. So far in your life, you've seen spiritual battles as random and surprising events 
rather than God's strategy to, to wise you up and mature you up for future battle. So what have we seen so far? God will lead you into predicaments beyond your ability to deal with. And Satan will come on the scene to discourage and destroy you. Now, God speaks three words to them in this situation that I believe that he'll speak these same three words to us, to you today. Here's the first word. Fear not. Exodus 14, 10 through the first part of 13. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Okay, put yourself in their sandals. You're standing beside the Red Sea. The mountains are north and south. East is the Red Sea. Pharaoh's coming in from the west. You're standing there with your children, maybe your parents, maybe aunts and uncles, and you're all there together. You're huddled together. You hear this distant rumble, and you see this cloud of dust in the air. What could it be? And then a messenger runs into camp and says, Pharaoh's army is coming. They're right upon us. 600 plus chariots are bearing down on us. Fear grips your heart like a vice. You could almost hear your heart pounding in your chest. Your palms are all sweaty. You can't hardly breathe. You picture a scene in your mind of the soldiers coming up and your family dying a painful death by the sword of the Egyptian soldiers. So fear is a normal reaction in a crisis time. Verse 10 says the people cried out loud. Crisis times are meant to lead us to God. They cried out corporately. It's good to cry out individually, but great when we can cry out corporately to God together in prayer. So while fear is a natural response to a crisis situation, it's not a good one. It causes panic, especially in groups. We make bad decisions. We lose our capacity for clear, rational thought. Fear is false evidence appearing real. We say things we shouldn't say. In verses 11 and 12, they come close to blasphemy here by saying they were better off in Egypt. It was God that had led them out. They complain to Moses and blame him. When you're fearful, you're full of doubts. We grumble and we complain. We want to go back to Egypt, back to the familiar. You know what Pharaoh would have said? Hop right in my chariot. I'll take you back. He would have killed them or enslaved them all over again. You do not want to go back to Egypt, back to the old sin life. So Moses told them, do not be afraid. Fear not. Scripture is replete with that admonition. If you read it, someone counted up about 365 fear nots in the Bible. Know what that sounds like? One per day. That's like your daily vitamin. I think we have to be reminded so often because we're fearful. 
So God wants to enlarge your faith to a place where you're in a crisis rather than just being afraid and saying bad stuff that you trust him. Why go back to Egypt, back to the old way of life when God wants to do a miracle in your life and deliver you? Second word from God to them, to you, stand firm. Stand firm. Exodus 14, 13, B through 14. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Stand still. Stand in silence. Get a grip on yourself. Quit shaking in fear. Says in Ephesians 6, 10-14, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. When we're afraid, we just run off in any direction. Or we jabber on, saying a bunch of stupid, unbelieving, blasphemous stuff. Stand firm. Get a grip. Get a grip on God. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We see God when we're still and seeking Him. And when we see Him, Courage rises. When we stand still, we see the salvation or deliverance of the Lord. What were they seeing? The Egyptians. They were seeing their troubles. They were seeing their problems. Like Peter, when Jesus said, invited him to come out of the boat and come out on the water to me, right? Peter must have walked on the water a few steps, but then he looked at the waves and the wind and took his eyes off Jesus and then he began to sink. So keep your eyes on Jesus when you're in the midst of the storm. God is poised to do a great miracle in your life. He wants to drive the enemy out and receive the glory. The Bible says the battle is the Lord's. The Bible says no weapon formed against you will prosper. God wants to increase your faith so you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt. He's your deliverer and he's your all in all. He won't allow anything else to be God in your life but Him. So He allows you to come to the end of yourself so you will say, the sufficiency is not of myself but of God. Don't panic. Don't run. Don't build a boat. Don't grab a life jacket. Stand still and you will see the salvation and deliverance of your God. Third word to them and to us. Go forward. Go forward. Exodus fourteen fifteen. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. It's almost here as if God tells Moses, Shut up. 
quit praying. Now is the time to move forward. And I can hear Moses saying, which way? And God says, forward, straight ahead. You mean into the sea? Yeah. I want you to stretch your hand out over the sea and watch what I do next. You know what? There comes a time in the Christian life when we need to get up off of our knees and onto our feet. I think there are two positions for the Christian. On your knees in prayer and on your feet in service. Stop panicking and complaining. Get a grip on God and move forward. Then watch God move. Well, you know the rest of the story, so let's read it in Exodus 14, 21 to 31. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God parted the waters of the Red Sea and they crossed on dry ground. I read on this that if they had walked two abreast into the sea, the line would have been 800 miles long and would have taken 35 days. But if they were 5,000 abreast, they would have crossed in 12 hours. The Egyptians were presumptuous and crossed into and entered the sea. And it's like the wheels of their chariots came off. And then the tons of water came crashing down upon them and they drowned in the depths of the sea. Their lifeless corpses washed up on the seashore. Now, maybe you've heard this theory that Israel didn't really cross the Red Sea. They crossed the Sea of Reeds. It was really a swamp. I don't know if you've ever heard that theory or not, but definitely it's out there. In fact, if you probably looked in any of your Bibles that has a map in it, I'm always so disappointed at good conservative scholarship that makes a good translation and good notes, but the map of the Exodus crossing is always so disappointing. They, they 
almost never show it across the Red Sea anywhere, either the Red Sea here or the Sea of Aqaba, which was also called the Red Sea. It's usually through this swampy marshland right up here above the Red Sea. And then they're on land the whole time. They go through a swamp. And I thought, what a great miracle that would be to drown all of Pharaoh's army in a foot of water. That's a bigger miracle. It says here in Isaiah 51.10, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? Not a foot deep, deep. Who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass through. I believe that they passed through the Red Sea, the Sea of Aqaba, also called the Red Sea, Yam Sup, at the place Nuevo that I showed you. So a miracle occurred when they couldn't help themselves and only God could rescue them. So crisis situations puts us in a situation where only God can rescue us and God gets all the glory. So now I want you to think about your life. As we wind down here. Are you in a crisis situation this morning? If so, can you see God in it? Is he anywhere at all? And are you ignoring the lies of the enemy that's speaking to discourage you? What is God saying to you? Any one of those three words? Is God speaking anything to you? I say to you this morning, if you're in that situation, get ready to see God do a great move on your behalf. Let's pray. Lord, what a great story the Exodus is. And it is for our instruction. You have much to say to us here. I pray that we will meditate on this story. And we will see you in our circumstances and have faith and trust you. That you do all things well. This is for our good. This is for our best. That you want to stretch us and grow us and teach us to battle. Battles lie ahead. Probably hard times lie ahead. We need to be ready to face them. And we can be in you, for you go before us. The battle is the Lord's. Our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but of you. You are our great shield and deliverer, our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and close for the song.